0: Our scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Philippians chapter 4. We'll read the whole chapter. But today we'll be looking at particularly verses 10 through 13. Especially 11, 12, and 13. Uh, Paul, as you may remember in this letter... Has reached really the height of persecution, particularly by the Jews. Having been hounded from city to city and harassed, he was finally arrested in Jerusalem. And they plotted to murder him, to silence him and silence the gospel. And he has made his way all the way to Rome, where he is imprisoned. And he has written this letter to one of the faithful churches he founded and whom he loves and has taught. And encouraged, and who have now provided for his needs. And he is thanking them for providing what he needed in prison so that he can continue his ministry. Now, if you think about it, if nobody gave him any money, he would be sitting in a jail cell, unable to talk to anybody. But because people have been providing money, he is able to rent a house, he is able to provide for people to come, to hear, to learn. And so his ministry is continuing, even though he is in prison, thanks to their help. And he tells them, in the section we're studying today, that he is thankful for that, but that he is comfortable in all situations. He has confidence, he has comfort in the Lord. And so we will look at that, but first let us read the passage. It says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and Cynthia to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers You have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you have no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply at every need of yours, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. For our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul... He is writing to them and he is bringing his letter really to a conclusion. And in the middle of thanking them, he makes that bold statement that he has learned to be content in every situation. And we will examine that this day. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the records of the life of Paul and of his ministry, his work, and of the inspired scripture you created through him. And as we study this brief section, we thank you for it and ask for your grace to understand it, to incorporate it in our lives and to live it day to day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you might say, how can a man who is beaten, flogged, arrested, imprisoned over and over again, be content in that? This is not stoicism now <coughs> stoicism in his day was a little different than it is today the the stoic philosophers back then generally held that emotions like fear and envy or passions or even relations between a husband and wife that all of those kinds of things Either were or arose from false judgments and understandings, and they believed that the sage, the great teachers were completely perfect and separated from those and would not have those feelings and that was really the beginnings of the the movement of stoicism, which today we think of you know whatever happens to me, i don't care it's not important uh, that's not where Paul is here he he didn't get along very well with the philosophers of his day. And he was raised over in that part of the world and was quite familiar with it and knew that it had no place in Christ and no place in the church. He's not talking here about suffering and want and persecution as if they were nothing and being upset about them or being troubled by them would be unspiritual. Uh, He had no such ideas at all. And no, no love for the philosophers, and really, but he had great and tremendous love for God's people. We learned about that back in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. He said, I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart. For you all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. You know, he had great passionate love for these people. Love that allowed him to endure everything and suffer everything without complaint, without great trouble, in contentment, because he knew the purpose. His purpose was his great passionate love for them. And that passion he had, he had for his own people as well. In Romans chapter 9, the first three verses, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow An unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He cared so much for his own people that he wished God would save them at his expense. But it could not happen. You know, that kind of passionate love was definitely not stoicism. But that was part of his strength. Part of the grace given to him by God. In his long list of things he suffered in 2 Corinthians 11, at the end of the list, 28 and 29, he says, apart from all these things, the beatings, the floggings, the shipwrecks, the persecutions, he says, apart from all these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak. Who is made to fall and I am not indignant. His love for God's people, for the church, for the ministry that God had given him was that passionate that it was a daily concern and a ex- source of anxiety for him. And so certainly he wasn't being a stoic. He wasn't saying, none of this matters. It all mattered to him. It mattered greatly to him. He had great desire and passion for it, great love for them. And when he suffered, when the churches suffered, he was sad. He was grieved. When people fell, it was terrible for him. It was, a, you know, it was a joy to him to serve the Lord, and he was content even though in his service he had given up almost all things. John Calvin, when he speaks of this passage, says, certainly ivory and gold and riches are the good cre- creations of God permitted even destined by divine providence for the use of man. It was never forbidden to laugh or be full or to add new to old or to have hereditary possessions or to be delighted with music or to drink wine. What is forbidden, he goes on to say, is the misuse of such things. You know, the love of them more than the love of God, the desire for them, the, the, the focus on them, the passion that Paul shows for the church and for God's people If that is shown to drinking and wine and music and pleasure, then it is sin. But he said these things may be used as the gifts of God with a pure conscience. And he warns us that often a haughty mind dwells in coarse clothing, whereas a godly and humble mind often wears fine linen and purple. We have a tendency to think the opposite, right? The rich are the greedy ones. The poor are never greedy. Well, if you've ever been poor, I think the desire for more is as strong as it is in the rich. And that's his point. But he says, Paul says that, yes, we can use these things with Christian liberty. They are not important, but we must be content with what God has given us. Uh, God has given some Christians peace, like Job in the first part of his life, God made a hedge around him, he had no troubles, and he worshipped God in joy. And for some Christians, that is their life. They have all they need and more, they are happy, they are content with God, and they are loving him. For others, they live in poverty their whole lives. Think of the the widow who put her two mites in the offering box, her required offering to God, her tenth, her tithe. And that was all she had to eat with. Yeah, sometimes that is the case. But was she bitter? Was she angry? No, she was apparently content enough to give the money to God and trust him for her daily food. What Paul is talking about here is not that stoicism. He is not railing on against you know, success or prosperity or any of those things. What he's talking about is contentment. You know, the word here, translated contentment, is interesting in that it has a number of meanings. Uh, the, the first meaning that is, if we are content, we are sufficient for oneself. Strong enough or have enough that we have no need of aid. No need of support. That's definitely not Paul's meaning here. Because he's in prison and he's thanking them for sending support so they continue his ministry. And so, the first meaning, not really what's going on. There is a sense in which Paul is saying he can live without support, but that is not his meaning as far as being content. The second meaning is to be completely independent of external circumstances. I don't need anyone, I'm all sufficient myself, I'm independent. Paul wouldn't be able to do his ministry if it weren't for everybody else. He's in prison. He's chained to a guard. He isn't doing anything useful unless other people help him by bringing people to him, by providing the funds he needs, and all of that. So the third meaning is the meaning here, and that is really to be contented with one's lot, one's means, no matter how small they may be. You know, he says, I know how to abound and how to suffer want. But it's the suffering of want that is really hardest for contentment. And that's what he's talking about. Whether he has plenty or hunger, abundance or need, whatever the circumstances, high or low, he was content with what he had because he had something else. He had God. He had his salvation. He had his relationship. He had the promises of Christ. And so he was able to be content. Uh, the shorter catechism, question number 80, asks what is required in the 10th commandment? The 10th commandment has to do with coveting. And it says the 10th commandment requires full contentment with our own condition and a right and charitable frame of spirit towards our neighbor. And all that is his. I remember when I was a college student in the Army Reserves, we get to drill one weekend, and another guy my same age shows up in a sports car. I'm like, I hate you. Uh, I'm in college, I have a wrecked car, holding it together with duct tape to keep on the road so I can keep studying. And he had success. Uh, That is the way the world thinks. Anger and bitterness at those who have. You know, think of parasitic socialism today here in America. What do they teach people? Oh, the, you know, people who have are wicked and evil and should be forced to share with us. You know, the fact that they work 100 hours a week for the last 10 years to get success is not important to them. They want what they have. They want what others have. They want to take it away and punish them and make them suffer so that their life is worth worse than ours that's exactly the opposite of what god wants rejoice with those who rejoice grieve with those who grieve you know we're they're not the only ones who are like that though we as christians sometimes are bitter about our lot in life We want what other people have. We want the peace. We want the joy. We want the church. We want the house. We want the land. We want the job. We want the children that are good and desirable. And we're not content. we moan, we groan, we weep, but also we grumble against God. God, why have you given others what I don't have? And that's sin. It's not sin to suffer, to moan, to groan, to weep, to beg, to plead, to pray. You know, just read the book of Psalms. Throughout the book of Psalms, you have moaning and groaning about the lot in life that people are suffering in. You know, many of David's Psalms, he weeps for the suffering that he has, the trials that he has, the persecution he's receiving, and he begs God to do something about it. But in all of that, he doesn't accuse God of sin. God, you have wronged me by not giving me what I want. That is what we do though sometimes, isn't it? God, I deserve better than this. When we say that, we're saying, God, you've sinned against me. And that is absurd. What does our sin deserve? What do we deserve? We've said this many times, hell. God is gracious to give us heaven. In this life... Sometimes we do not have all that we want. But that is fine. We should learn to be content. Remember, even Christ, in his suffering, was not a stoic. In Luke 22, verses 40 and 41, he's gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be betrayed. And he withdrew from his disciples about a stone's throw. He knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And there appeared an angel to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. He was not being a stoic. He knew the great sorrow, the great trial that he was going to face. And it was hard. And he prayed. But he was content. He does not say, Father, take this cup from me or else. He says, no, not my will, but your will. I'm willing to submit myself to you. I'm willing to be content with your decision in this matter. With your will in this matter. And so he was content with whatever God would do. That contentment was lived in his life and even in his death. And Paul also is teaching that, that we must live out that contentment. It's not just words. We can say, oh, I'm good with that, and not be. And be bitter, be angry, be sulking. And we often had to do that with our parents when we were kids, right? You didn't tell the parents, what you're doing is not good, I don't like it. (laughs) You said, yes, sir. And then you went to your room, and in your heart, you cursed your folks. And we tend to do that with God as well, as if somehow he cannot see what is done in secret. Paul is arguing that we must live out this life of contentment. And clearly he's showing the the Philippians that he wasn't seeking their things he was seeking their souls he was seeking them he didn't want all their stuff he wanted their heart he wanted their life dedicated to god he wanted to represent them a pure virgin to christ on the day of the lord there are many verses that speak to this the ones i just read about his love above really demonstrate that he was living that in his life Believing that, desiring that, not their things, but their hearts. He didn't long for great wealth, and we're warned not to. Remember 1 John two fifteen through 17 Do not love the world or the things of the world? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desire, but whoever does, the will of God abides forever. You know, that warning is twofold. We don't love those things, but instead we look to God who abides forever. Where does the contentment of Paul come from? Not from his things, but from the Lord, from his strength, from his blessing, from his promises, which are great Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 6-10 that godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. If we have enough to survive, we should be content. Why? Because this is just a short exile, a short sojourn in this world, and we have eternity with God. And that is what we are hoping for. That is what we are looking forward to. I remember when I was young and an atheist, I looked forward to vacation. Now I look forward to heaven. It is my rest. This is my work. That is my eternity. This is temporary. I know many can understand that idea that we are here for a short time and many cannot really understand the eternity that awaits us. If we put our hope in that, our confidence in that, then we can be content and live content here. We see in this passage that Paul's heart was taken up with much better things. In this book, we see his passion for God, his love for the things of the Lord, his desire for that. And his understanding of Scripture in Psalm 142, verse 5, I cry to you, O Lord, and say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Paul warns us in Colossians 3.5 that covetousness is idolatry. And that is important because in Psalm 16 verses 4 through 6 we read, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. And the covetousness being idolatry is treated as a God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. Their names I will not take on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Now that's an allusion to the people entering the promised land and dividing it up by lot. They mapped out areas and then they cast the lot before the Lord and the Lord assigned each family their area. Some got beautiful lush lands. You know, well prepared fields, vineyards already grown. I'm sure some got wastelands and crags and desolate places. But he's saying that doesn't matter because the Lord is my lot. The Lord is my place. The Lord is my inheritance. You know, we were warned in Hebrews thirteen five to keep our life free from the love of money and be content. With what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is that enough for us to be content? I think it was for Paul. He understood the Lord was with him, the Lord would never leave him. Nothing could separate him from the love of God. And so he was content. We have God, we have a place in his home, we have eternity with him we read Psalm 73 a few times lately, but I want to read that bit again. It said, You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom I, have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What is there to desire that is greater than God? What is there to desire that is more precious than his love? Can we be content with his love, with his grace, with his promises, with eternity? I think yes should be the answer. Paul says to them, I do not speak in regards to my need. You know, he isn't asking them for money. I do not speak in respect of want. I have what I need. My heart is satisfied. I have enough. I've learned in whatever state I am in to be content. Now note well what he says. I have learned. This is not a natural state of the heart. This is not a natural ability. This virgin says about this, we, we do not need to sow thistles and brambles. Uh, just go for a walk along the side of the highway. We don't need to sow wild brambles and pricker bushes and things like that. Why? He says they come up naturally enough because they're indigenous to the earth. And so we need not teach men to complain. They complain fast enough without any education. It's easy to grumble. Nobody needs to tell us how to grumble. Just look at children. When do they start grumbling? About the time they learn to speak. Were they grumbling before that? Oh, Yeah in their whining and crying and fussing and demanding. We do not need to teach men to complain. They complain fast enough without education. But the precious things of the earth must be cultivated. If we would have wheat, we must plow and sow. If we want flowers, there must be a garden and a gardener's care. Now, contentment is one of the flowers of heaven, and if we would have it, we must cultivate it. It will not grow in us by nature. It is a new nature alone that can produce it. And even then, we must be specially careful and watchful that we maintain and cultivate the grace which God has sown in us. Uh, He puts that very well. You know, man, we know every intention and thought of his heart was evil all the time, continually, Genesis 6-5. We don't need to be taught to complain, but we need to learn to be content. How do we learn? You remember my story about my wonderful spelling experiences in school? They'd make me write out the words ten times, and each time I wrote it wrong, I'd have to write it ten times again. And when we started writing these little paragraph essays, if I had a word misspelled, I had to go write it ten times. You know, we learn by by doing and by repetition. Deuteronomy 6, 4-9 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, And when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. What is he saying? Go over it over and over and over again. That's how we learn the way of the Lord. But how do we learn to put it into practice? By doing it over and over and over again. And oh, guess what happens when we do it wrong? Well, we're going to do it over and over and over again, again. Uh, Think of Paul in his life. How did Paul learn these things? Well, we know his background, right? In Philippians 3, 4 through 8, he says, I have reason for the flesh. If anyone thinks it is reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as the righteousness under the law, blameless. That's his beginnings. He was considered a rising star in the Pharisees' faith. He was expected one day he would be one of the teachers and have his own school even. But he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know, he was high. He had all these things and now he is low. How low has he gone? Well, think of it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I mentioned this passage earlier. He says, I'm speaking as a fool, but I'll boast. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. The offspring of Abraham, so and I are the servants of Christ. I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. He's trying to help the Corinthians understand that these men who are puffing themselves up aren't really all that great. Just because Paul is humble doesn't mean he's inferior to them. And so he says, I'm talking like a madman by boasting here. In far greater labors, in more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift in the sea on frequent journeys, in danger from river, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then it goes on to the part I read, and among all these other things, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. How did Paul learn? He had it good, he had it bad. He was well received and saw many converts, and then he was taken and beaten and imprisoned or flogged. He was high, he was low, over and over and over again. I don't know many other instances where people suffered like he did for the gospel and yet persevered through to the end. Oftentimes in church history you read a persecution breaking out and even ministers denying Christ to be saved and then wanting to become pastors again when things settle down. Uh, Paul wasn't like that. He kept going and going, but he learned through repeated experience. You do it, it works, great. You build up that confidence, you build up that ability. I I mentioned before the first time I went to public speaking in seminary, I sat up there and I read like this and I never varied my voice or my tone or my inflection and I did not look up one time. (laughs) It was terrible. How do you get to the point where you can confidently talk in front of 300 strangers, 1,000 strangers? You do it, you survive, you reflect, you do it again. And the same is true with our life. We have good times, we have bad times. By persevering through them, by maintaining our composure, by being, as he says... (coughs) excuse me, by being, as he says, content. Okay, I was having it good. Now I'm facing a trial. I will be content because the Lord is with me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. He will work this out for my own good, he has promised. And so over and over again, Paul faced these trials. Over and over again, he was content in them, working to solve the problems, working to glorify God, working to build the church, but not worrying that I have no food and I'm cold and I'm in the middle of nowhere and there are bandits chasing us or there are wild animals. Like, yes, those are all problems. I'm sure he prayed a lot, but he was content and persevered. How do we learn? Well, the same way. We we learn how to be brought low. We were high, we're brought low. We put our confidence not in ourselves, not in our situation. We seek our happiness and our joy, not in the situation, but in God. And we endure and we persevere and we have that comfort that God provides. The comfort, as he said earlier, that surpasses all understanding, the peace that surpasses all understanding. And that allows us to endure these things and to be content with what we have. Now we may not face persecution like he did. We may in the coming years. It's hard to say. But we face problems with health. There were times when we were vital and active and happy and Everything was going well and there were times we were injured or sick or suffering. As we get older, certainly the times of vitality decrease and the times of sickness and suffering and difficulty and frailty increase. Many have faced poverty. Some are facing it now. In other times, they've had enough. They've had plenty. They have all they need. They don't need to worry you know, we go through these cycles, and we're told in Psalm 34, verse 8, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. You know, when we live through these things, we see God, and especially if we draw near to Him in prayer, and we see the answers to prayers, it turns the situation eventually turns around. We grow in our confidence, in our comfort. And we're able more and more to be content whatever He has given us, knowing that He is there. You know, "My God, my God, why are you so far from me?" is the, the thing we say when we're in sin that we need to deal with. When we are right with God, when we are loving God and we are praying for God and we are loving the things of God, and we are not so concerned about the things of the world. Then we know he is with us, that he leads us by our right hand, that we have that joy, that peace that surpasses understanding, that contentment, that Christian contentment that is so necessary in our lives. Of course, we do often express our discontentment and set our hearts on the things we shouldn't be setting them on. And what happens? Well, Hebrews twelve six, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son he receives. Think about that. That's not really a pleasant thought. But that's what happens. Proverbs thirty eight and nine tell us that you know, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? And Israel did that a lot. When they were rich and had everything going for them, they turned to idols. When they were persecuted and hard, they turned back to the Lord. The whole book of Judges is that cycle. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You know, we... We have sometimes though these desires we want what we shouldn't have, we desire what we shouldn't have, we love what we don't need. And the Lord looks at us and says, I can fix that. Jesus says in John fifteen, one and two, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. What's the first rule of gardening? Get rid of the suckers. They just take the strength. They leach all the the energy. You don't need those. If you're raising berries, what do you do? You cut off the old wood. They don't produce anymore, and you throw it away. How does that relate to our life? But what are those things in our lives that are not moving us towards God? What are those distractions in our life? You know, our love for Money or cars or whatever. Or love for pleasure. All of those things, God can take them away. How does he take them away? How does he prune them off? Well, if you're using your money unwisely, he takes the money away. You lose your job. You suffer a health setback that takes a lot of your funds. Giving your energy to sin? Welcome to sickness. Then you don't have an energy for that. The discipline of the Lord is a fearsome thing to redirect us away from the corruption and towards contentment. I have what I need in Christ. It's hard to do this without grumbling. Where does he get his strength? Well, he tells us in verse 13 that he gets his strength from the Lord. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul here is giving a a universal truth to explain his ability to be content. How can he be content? Because I can do all things through God who strengthens me. I can have courage. I can have holiness. I can preach. I can teach. I can endure the traveling. I can endure prison. I can be content. I can do all this through God because God is strengthening me. Jesus says in John 15, verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. It is that oneness, that unity with God that gives us that strength. That strength that allows us to be content. We can't do it alone. Our own strength is not adequate. Our own wisdom is not enough. Our own holiness is not there. But in Christ, in God, with his strength, we can. Now, Paul here isn't claiming to be omnipotent. He isn't saying he can do anything. He's saying he can do all the things that God wants him to do through the strength of God. And he's not boasting of his own greatness. He's giving glory to God. Remember what we were when we were saved. Were we mighty and powerful and wise? Were we scholars? Paul says in 1 Corinthians one to 26-29, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to the world's standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Our strength is not our own. We can do it through God. When we try to do it in ourself, what happens? And we're talking about that in relationship to fear in our Tuesday night study. What happens when we're trusting and hoping in ourselves? What happens when we're doing it in our own strength? We find it is not enough. We stumble, we fall, we fail. We realize we can't do it. Which is why Paul stresses that he can do all things through him who strengthens me, through God. Paul and even we can do it in that strength. Can we face being brought low? Yes. Can we face hunger? Poverty? Persecution? Are we strong enough ourselves? No. But we can do it in Christ. We can do it in the love of God. Can we face persecution? Can we face the loss of our job? Can we face sickness that will be with us for the rest of our days? Can we face the death of a loved one? Can we face anything? Yes, we can face all things in the strength of God. Now, God gives us strength to face the day, not necessarily strength to face what might happen in the future. You know, he isn't going to give you strength today to face something that hasn't happened. And so when you see what's happening to other people, sometimes we lose hope. We were talking about that Tuesday night. You know, we see somebody's husband has died. Going to the funeral, you think, what would happen if my husband died or my wife died? Where would I be? How could I survive? And we might not have the strength. But well, we don't need to borrow trouble. We have the strength when we need it because God is with us and knows what we need even before we need it and provides us then. But we have to ask him and we have to ask rightly with the desired for his glory. And the same is true of our contentment. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He doesn't say, give us this day our bread for the next year. Give us this day our bread for the next month, so I don't have to worry. Give us this day our daily bread. We can be confident in Him and content in Him, knowing that He is there, that He is with us, that He will give us our daily bread. Things may look bad for a while. I'm sure Paul faced death many times over. Not certain whether he would live or die in his persecutions and his troubles, his trials. I can imagine being far enough from shore that when shipwrecked, you spend a day and a night in the sea, that you probably are thinking death is there. But he was content because God was there. And we also can be content. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old receive their commendation. Really, faith is key to our contentment. Do we believe the promises of God? Do we believe that He will never leave us or forsake us? Do we believe He will work out this trial, this suffering, this whatever for our good. If we know those things are true, we really, really know them, then we can be content with what we have. Because we don't need to worry. We can be content in every circumstance because God is with us. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You (coughs) we do thank you, Lord, that you have promised to be with us, that you have promised to provide for us, to care for us, to work things out for our own good. And we know, Lord, that sometimes life is hard. We don't have what we want. Sometimes we don't even have what we need. But we know that we have you, and that is our greatest need. Help us, Lord, to be content with your provision. You are a loving Father. You are not going to do evil to us. You're not going to hurt us. But you're going to be there for us. And whatever you provide is enough for us. Help us, Lord, to be convinced of that. To be content in our lives. To not grumble, but to rejoice in you in all things. And again, to rejoice. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.